Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. This week, we talked to Charlotte Renee Woods about her search to find out what's actually in the Charlottesville police budget. Plus, stay tuned to hear voices from the Treader Transgender Oral History Project. I wanted to hear the stories of trans people in their own words and preserve those stories for other people to learn from. Thanks so much for talking to us today, Charlotte. Let's talk about your recent article about the Charlottesville Police Department budget. Activists have been calling to defund the Charlottesville and Albemarle Police, and so you and the new Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter, Jesse Higgins, started trying to understand what the CPD budget is actually spent on. Can you start by telling us what budget information about the Charlottesville Police Department is publicly available right now? Charlottesville Police Department, um, after multiple FOIA Freedom of Information Act requests from multiple newsrooms, regular citizens of Charlottesville, um, they posted the last five years of their police department budget online. Um, But a lot of people were still complaining, saying this isn't detailed enough. We want more line items. We want it more itemized breakdown to truly understand. In the last budget year, how much money did the Charlottesville Police Department get? So in the most recent year, they've been given $18 million. Um, when I was speaking with their spokesperson, Tyler Hahn, he was saying a, a sizable chunk of that funding actually goes towards salary of, of department staff, which, you know, that makes sense. But people were really curious what's being spent on gear, what's being spent on programs, what's being spent on training. So that's that's where a lot of these, these unanswered questions have been continually, gradually becoming answered, and some are still in the process. Can you tell us a little bit about how you went about reporting this story? What were you hoping to find? Throughout the earlier weeks in June, shortly after George Floyd's death at the end of May, there were a lot of demonstrations with a lot of different chants and and demands. And one of those was that I had heard was defund, you know, hashtag defund the police, defund CPD. And I, I guess over the years, I'd covered some some movements in different cities that I lived in before I came here. And I I had heard it a little bit, but I I hadn't heard that specific term quite as much. So it was a chance to educate myself, but also journalism is a public service. So anyone who hasn't really been to too many of the protests or doesn't understand what that means, I thought, oh, well, let me try and see if I can figure it out and explain it, um, contextualize it. And then in the process, I began to learn that it's, it's actually very nuanced people calling for legitimately like disbanding, dismantling law enforcement and reimagining something new. And then there's a lot of ideas for what that would look like. And then for some people, defunding means divesting some of the funds and some of the things that law enforcement responds to and instead reinvesting those funds into other things um, and having other people take over different types of responses. Like, for example, people say, there are specialists and social workers that could instead be the primary or sole responders to certain calls like welfare checks or mental health or you know domestic violence. What I was hearing was a lot of the conversation about defunding is intrinsically tied to the budget. I reached out to all the city councilors and the city of Charlottesville slash you know, city manager. I had a very long conversation with uh, Councilor Lloyd Snook, and he was saying that he, he called the police department's budget a black box. He said that council didn't really know enough to even have um, comprehensive discussions on defunding that can, a lot of constituents want. So that kind of became, it started to become the focus of the story is 
well, how transparent is this? How much communication is actually going on? And what are the next steps for a community to have meaningful conversations and start to collaborate with their elected officials, with their department heads on what can be done, what could change, what doesn't need changed, um, that sort of thing. The chief of police, Rochelle Brackney, has called to decouple the police. What does decouple mean? Early in June, she had been at an NAACP event where she had said that she supports the term decoupling law enforcement. She said, quote, we keep criminalizing social ills. You make officers social workers with guns and handcuffs. The less likely you are to have police intervention, the less likely you are to have a bad outcome. And so that seemed like a a really good statement to start to dig into. So we reached out to the police department and we asked Chief Brackney very targeted questions. Um, Unfortunately, we did not get those answered, but it doesn't mean that we may not still. So Jesse actually spoke with a policy fellow at um, Urban Institute's Justice Policy Center. It's a nonprofit that's based in Washington, D.C. The senior policy fellow was named Je- also named Jesse, <laughs> Jesse Janetta, and she was saying, quote, one of the top challenges when you look at budgets is there are lines for things like personnel and equipment. These are very broad budget categories. When you're thinking about redirecting resources, you're thinking about taking specific action, and it can be hard to determine within the broad things what to cut, which kind of gets back to what a lot of locals were saying when they said they wanted more line items. They wanted more like of a comprehensive breakdown. And then Janetta says the question should be, what do we want to create? You mentioned in the article, too, that at one point the police department released different budgets to different groups. Can you talk a little bit about that and what discrepancies there were between them? So on June 12th, when the police department published a batch of its budgets from the last five years, Um, each year was, you know, one to two pages with 60 to 80 line items. Um, And then I think we broke it down in the article that 13 of those items were salaries and benefits, about 8 million was for full-time salaries. But the rest of the line items described really broad administrative and operating costs like rent, travel, and meals without like specifics on what specifically those things were for. So then later in June, um, Charlottesville resident Matthew Gilligan, he requested a budget and it had more details including specific police officer salaries. Um, Obviously, the names were redacted. And then when the People's Coalition had asked for a budget, it ended up being very similar to the ones that were posted on the Charlottesville Police Department's website. So as we're talking about this and we've had months of protests and stuff, on Wednesday, the Charlottesville Police Department was accused of using excessive force while arresting an intoxicated man on the downtown mall. Can you tell us a little bit about that incident and how the police responded? So an Instagram video surfaced from a person who was um, standing by. By Thursday night, there was a press release from Charlottesville Police Department that indicated there had been a 911 call concerning someone who was laying on the ground near 200 West Main Street on downtown mall. So the responders that arrived on that scene were the Charlottesville Police Department, Charlottesville Fire Department, and the Charlottesville Albemarle Rescue Squad. So multiple people responded, and then after a few minutes of conversation and back and forth, the officer who arrived on the scene first dismissed the others who had arrived. And a lot of the response from community members in the past 24 hours, there's been a lot of discussion of, well, how could this have been handled differently? Did the man need to be arrested? And it kind of does reverberate back into sort of what people have been suggesting and calling for 
in the past month on police, various types of police reform and response reform, essentially. So the man was intoxicated. The police found him lying down on the ground on the mall, but he was able to stand up and communicate. How did the incident escalate from asking him if he's okay, you know, asking him if he has somewhere to go, to him being thrown on the ground? In a conversation with the officer, they learned that he doesn't have a residence. They learned that he had been drinking. He kept saying that he wanted to go get a cigarette and a soda. And the officer offered to him, like, leave the mall and I won't arrest you. But ultimately, and it ended up turning into an arrest. And then the body camera footage, the camera fell, or I suspect it fell, based on the fact that it went... It went very dark, so no one really knows exactly what happened with the camera. We know that we couldn't see the moment where use of force was displayed, other than the complimentary Instagram video that was posted. On social media, people have been saying, this is a mental health call. This is a substance abuse call. This did not need to be an arrest. This could have been handled differently. That's what some community members are saying. And then meanwhile, law enforcement is saying that they are conducting an investigation, so they cannot comment on the matter right now. When I saw this video, I thought about an incident that I saw when I was a UVA student. I was walking from the corner past the rotunda and there was a young white woman who had who was really intoxicated and was passed out on a bench. And when I called 911 because I was worried that she had alcohol poisoning, a very similar scene ensued in that a police officer on a bike came up, UVA police department and an ambulance, but her name was not recorded. She was taken to the hospital. She was not charged with drunk in public. Her fake ID was taken and there were no other repercussions. And it just really, I think, exposed the major differences in how unhoused people are treated in the public space versus intoxicated UVA students. Fair point. And something I'm looking into, I've been learning more about, and I need to follow up more, is Charlottesville Police Department, they have a crisis intervention team that, you know, allegedly are trained to handle various types of crisis and responses where the end goal is to get de-escalation, to not make things worse, to get someone, if not taken to a hospital, then at least referred to community resources. So that's something I'm looking into right now. I've had some interviews. I have some more lined up. But there definitely in what you what you mentioned, it's it's also worth noting that oftentimes you're more you're offered resources versus being restrained if you're a young college student, especially if you're not a person of color, if you're not homeless, you're less likely statistically to have these things happen. When reporting last year for kind of on the establishment of the civilian review board, one of the initial board members, Gloria Beard, was telling me about how she's lived in Charlottesville a very long time. And there was a time when, you know, especially with with youth, like if law enforcement was called for something, the parents would be given an update, the children or the teenagers would be brought home and not necessarily marked with this whole stain on their record. Whereas we've seen that that is less likely in recent years, that's less likely with, with youth of color as well. It's your first offense, boom, you've got that. I wonder if there's a policy difference, whether spoken or unspoken to, between the UVA PD and the Charlottesville Police Department. This may have changed, but I know when I was an RA at UVA, we were explicitly told by the UVA Police Department that if we called 911, 
on a student that we were concerned had alcohol poisoning that they would not be arrested or charged with anything unless they were also destroying property, harassing another person. You know, there had to be something else going on. Yeah. And it's also, you know, what is the um, campus police's response versus, you know, Albemarle or Charlottesville or wherever you happen to be on that campus, if you're straddling the city or the county line or you're in the core of campus, could be different. Do you think that this incident will impact local calls to defund the police? We were just talking about this this morning. We, we were like imagining this Venn diagram of where this incident falls with so many like ideas people have had, calls for change that have been happening. There's like basically this just like metaphorical Venn diagram in this, this incident, this single incident and it overlaps with those. For the past since George Floyd died, that happened in Minneapolis. It didn't happen here. We've had things happen here, but we haven't had a recent like high profile case. And so as things are happening around the country, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, a few other people, and there's this reignited passion for advocacy and passion for change. The fact that this situation happened here recently now, if, if anyone was getting, you know, tired or if anyone was just not thinking or, or even in the mindset of, well, it's not happening here right now. I think it, it definitely has spark, re-sparked some people. And I, and I think that this, this situation can be analyzed and broken down by experts, activists, journalists to kind of figure out like what, what within this incident can we learn from? Is there anything else you want to add? There's a couple pieces that we are working on that kind of in part pick up where the last article left off and in part pick up where this new incident kind of like will take everything. And as of now, as far as we know, Mr. Gonzalez remains in custody, correct? Not seeing any new updates just yet. And I know that the you know CPD said that there's they're investigating and so at this time they're not going to be speaking. So they will give us an update when they have one. Thank you so much, Charlotte. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks, thanks, Mary, for having me. Charlotte Renee Woods is a reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on the show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center. During these challenging times, the Southern Environmental Law Center is remaining strong and resolute in protecting the fundamental right to clean air and clean water and a healthy environment for all. In our last segment, we'd like to introduce you to Transcripts, a podcast from the Treader Transgender Oral History Project. It pops in my head. It was a clip of Nina Simone sitting at a table. She said, I never felt liberation, but in this moment, I'm around other Black people. I feel liberated. That's Lasaya Way. She's talking to oral historian Merle Bean in fall 2019, and she's talking about freedom. It's always going to be a bill that needs to be paid. It's always going to be a water bill that's being turned off. 
It's always going to be a car note that you missed. It's always going to be that particular stress. But I feel liberated when I'm around other black people. I feel liberated when I'm around other trans people. From the Treader Transgender Oral History Project, this is Transcripts, a new podcast series about how trans activists are changing the world. The state of transness in America, the state of blackness in America, the state of sexuality in America, everything that I care about, housing, discrimination, education. And that, that is the work. That is the work that I'm so honored to stand here and lift up for you today. My name is Andrea Jenkins. And I'm Merle Beam. I'm the one who spoke with Lasaya and all the other voices you'll hear in this episode. I work on an oral history project where I collect stories of trans activists from all over the U.S. I actually started that oral history project back in 2015. I wanted to hear the stories of trans people in their own words and preserve those stories for other people to learn from. And I'm so glad you did because the stories are amazing. And those stories are especially important right now because so many trans people are dreaming of a new world, one without gender discrimination or racism or economic injustice. We've been asking folks, what are the tools you're using to make change? Who's leading the struggle? And how in the world are people getting enough money to live and do all of this work? So in this pilot episode, we're going to tackle a question that sounds simple, but is actually really big. Is life actually getting better for trans people? At the same time, we have this visibility. There's also been more Black trans women killed last year than I think ever in my lifetime. How do you explain that? What do you think is going on? We allowed our enemies to know where we're at. We have allowed our enemies to know where we're at. This answer was so compelling that I wanted to back up and learn more. How did we arrive at a place where some trans people, especially white trans folks, people like me, think of things as getting better, but life is actually getting a lot more dangerous for Black trans women like Lysia? To answer that question, we talked to so many different people, and we want you to hear their stories directly from them. You'll hear folks describing the barriers that they face, but you'll also hear what they are doing to change things. That decision to try to change things, to devote your life to a larger struggle, it isn't always an easy choice. Activism wasn't exactly Lasaya's plan A. I was director of communications in Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, at Bell South when it was slowly switching over to AT&T. For the price, plus digital satellite TV with more HD channels than cable, all for under $99 a month. Bell South, call today. Good job after I graduated college. I'm like, ooh, I nailed one. She wasn't out as trans at work. As a trans feminine person, it's easier to live as a stealth person. But about a year into the job, she rolled into work after she had been out the night before at the club. You know, I'm still young. I'm still vibracious. I wanted to have fun. So I came back to work that following Monday 
with my stuff on my desk packed up. One of Lysiah's cis gay co-workers had seen her at the club, and from there he figured out she was trans. Then he outed her to the rest of the office. The co-worker that wanted my job told my boss at that time that I was a trans person. And it was multiple layers to that, right? I was a Black person in a high position at a company that that is not really known for a Black person to be that high in a position that I was in. And also, I was a trans person. And then they fired me for non-disclosure of my transness. She was in Tennessee, where there aren't many protections for workers. They can fire you because your hair is purple and they don't like the color of your hair. So in the moments, I was depressed. I'm like, what am I going to do? How dare they treat me this way? Then I was just like, how can I take my language and my education and take it to the next level for communities? My community that is not seen. So I joined Black Lives Matter. And then ever since then, I took off. And that transformation from being fired to becoming an activist, that's a familiar story for the trans folks we spoke with. I'm just literally coming to work, doing my job, and I don't know if I'm going to be fired or not. That's Diamond Styles. By the time she was fired from her job, her life was already shaped by racism and discrimination. My mother had been caught up in the prison industrial complex. As a Black woman, she was one of those super predators. Super predator refers to a now discredited theory from the 1990s. The idea that some people were just naturally violent and lacked empathy. Most of those so-called super predators were Black. The concept was made popular to the nation by the Clinton administration. They used that terminology in campaigns, ultimately passing a racist, tough-on-crime bill in 1994. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. And the president has asked... That fake science was part of a trend of mass incarceration of black and brown people. People like Diamond's mom. And so she got caught up in that, and I got custody of my brother. And so I'm at home, a single trans woman with an 11-year-old. As a Black trans woman, Diamond knew she had even more stacked against her. I work for um, Healer Packard, and when my transness came out, one of my family members worked there, like a distant cousin, and she told people that I was trans. Her co-workers started harassing her. I didn't have any political recourse. I didn't have any legal recourse because of the state that I lived in. We didn't have the protection for trans people. And so I I was forced into um, survival sex work at the time. And, you know, it just changed the trajectory of my life. Sex work is something that some trans women do to make money. But it wasn't that Diamond wanted to. She felt isolated. But then she found something that changed her life. YouTube. Hey, what's up? This is your girl, Diamond Styles. Hey, what's up? This is your girl, Diamond. How are you? Now, some of you may know me. And I wasn't trying to be an activist. But because of those situations and because of technology, I started to be a YouTuber. They see your personality, your smile, <laughs> all that good stuff. They see all of that. 
that's what they are attracted to. And because I was a little bit older in my transition, I was 26 at the time, but I had been living my truth since 13, 14. And so because I had already physically transitioned years ago, my narratives were about just relationships and stories. You have to create your own ideals of beauty. If you have your own ideals of beauty, nobody can come around and smack it out of your head. <laughs> Got like four, 4.5 million views and it just, it just grew from that. I felt like every time they talked to trans people, all they had to talk about was the bathroom issue. I care about things more than the bathroom issue. So I was like... People started to say I was an activist and I really wasn't for sure if that had fit because at the time I was still in sex work. I was doing all the non-respectable stuff. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not no activist. That's for the goody two <laughs> That's for the goody two That's not me. But the more Diamond worked in activism, the more she realized it actually was her. And so what this last five years has taught me in being in this work is that you have the power to build community to keep you safe. You have the power to build community to give you the support that you need so you can do the things you want to do. And if you build that infrastructure and that, that family and that community, that can be a part of your support system to be able to fight when you need to fight, give you the power to change your own trajectory in your life. But what does that change look like? When I asked her how things had changed in the last few decades, Lasaya had a pretty frank answer. It's a lot of assimilating politics. And what I mean by assimilating politics is, as a Black revolutionary, as a Black person that deals with Black politics and Black power and Black liberation, we think that if we want to be a part of society, we're still using our master's tools to be a part of society that deem us not normal. A lot of trans people have this idea that if we get more visibility, we'll do better. And some of that has worked for people like me. But we heard very different stories from the folks working on the front lines of Black and trans people of color-led movements. If I'm still in Texas or Indiana and I'm getting fired and I don't have the legal recourse to protect myself against workforce discrimination. It doesn't matter if everybody's seen this on the TV because I don't have the protections in policy. When I was homeless, I couldn't go to the cisgender women's shelter because they're uncomfortable and whatever rules that they have. I couldn't go to the male shelter because that's a liability for them. Like they literally asked me on the phone, can you take your breast off? <laughs> on the phone, well, if you can't take them off, then you can't come here. The normal social safety nets that a cis person could go to, I didn't have access to them, and they weren't safe places for me. This has been Just a Taste of Transcripts, a new podcast from the Treader Transgender Oral History Project. You can hear more stories of trans activists pushing back and gaining power in the full episode titled, I'm Seeing My Liberation Right Now. Transcripts is available wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Production assistance this week by Justine Baird and Sarah Howarth. 
Our theme song is Kyoju Beat by Moreno Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. <laughs>